This is Chris Martin, and me and my buddy Kevin O'Connor, a.k.a. Kevin O'Everything, host an NBA podcast called The Mismatch. They call it The Mismatch because I'm awesome and Kevin is a gigantic nerd. No, no, that's not why at all, Chris. They call it The Mismatch because I have a brain and you're a loudmouth bozo. Good grief. (laughs) Anyway, listen to our amazing NBA podcast, The Mismatch. Or don't. We really don't care. We're probably going to win a million awards either way. <laughs> Chris, we do care. So don't say that. Please subscribe and listen to The Mismatch only on Spotify. Did you really call me a bozo? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans at Empower What's Next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. So we've known each other almost 20 years. Yeah. Um, there was a period where we didn't speak. We, it's amazing. We go into that. We looked exactly the same. Yeah, we look exactly the same. My, my hair is probably whiter. Uh-huh. Um, and this is both weird and not weird. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like we have such a history together. It's totally normal that we we had dinner, I think, a few months ago. And mm-hmm. We talked about a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think when somebody's in your life for two decades, mm-hmm. you probably have some some bumps along the way. We had a really major bump. This is like Lisbeth Taylor and uh, <laughs> Richard Burton. We might get married again. It's like we are getting married again. So uh, <laughs> It's a three-month marriage. <laughs> yeah, we have a, a three-month marriage. marriage, quickie marriage. But I, I think both of us... Both of us felt like uh, we had such a history together that was mostly really good and rewarding mm-hmm. that it would be fun mm-hmm. to work together again, and even if it was in a pretty small way. Yeah, look, I am shockingly comfortable, right? I mean, there's a slight trepidation. You and I actually haven't done anything public for a long time. No. And uh, so I had a little trepidation, but I come in and I, I sit down on the sofa and it's quite comfortable. <laughs> We're laughing about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Larry Bird right next to you. Uh, Muhammad Ali right yeah. behind you. And it's great to see you. And it will be fun to do a little something together, uh, which we are. So DAZN and and The Ringer are going to do a little business together and have a little fun together, um, which I appreciate. Uh, and it really makes me feel good to figure out some other way to pay you exorbitant <laughs> sums of money again. <laughs> quite, de- quite, quite deserved. It was always deserved before. It's deserved again. And uh, I think what you've done at The Ringer is remarkable and fabulous. Thank and you. It's a pleasure for me. It's like a little payback. Happy payback for Grantland, right? I get like have a little, little recompense bit. and say, you know what, what you've done at uh, 
The Ringer is spectacular. You kind of redid it again twice. It's hard to do twice. Thank you. Let's go backwards. Uh-huh. Um, let's go back to your background because I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. You started Rolling Stone. You're a publishing guy. Yep. Uh, ESPN brings you in. Actually, no, let's take Rolling Stone for a second. You're working in Rolling Stone for Jan Winner mm-hmm. when he was at the height of being Jan Winner. For better yeah, or worse. He just moved the Rolling Stone to New York. I started there in 1979, right out of graduate school, Columbia. Uh, they were at 745 Fifth Avenue, which couldn't be a tonier address. It's the Squib Building, um, across from the Plaza Hotel, across from the GM Building. Yeah. Spectacular offices. The 22nd, 23rd, 27th, 28th floor, overlooking the park. Uh but once you got inside the walls, completely and utterly countercultural. You know, Buddy Miles showed up one time with a gun <laughs> demanding to get in the office. And you had all these San Francisco transplants. It was great. Yeah. It was, it was New York pre-AIDS, pre-crack. So you had a real sense of freedom and the city was tough and dangerous. But it was so exciting, you know. And they had such DNA back then. I mean, that was the mag- them and Sports Illustrated, I think, were probably the magazines in the, the late 70s, right? It was still a quarterfold tabloid. It yeah. still was printed on newsprint. And it's still the first first issue I got there was Ricky Lee Jones. I don't know if you remember that cover, but it was no. a spectacular cover. You know, Blondie was on the cover shortly after that. I mean, it, they the journalism was unbelievable. Annie Leibovitz was still the chief photographer. Right. Jan was, a you know, at Studio 54 and was a— Toast of the town. So it was Hunter Thompson came in the office uh, and we'd play. Uh, He's plummeting at that point a little bit. He was, but he would come to the office and we'd throw football in the halls and knock yeah. things over. And and uh, Fred Schreuer's once hung from the balcony by his hands on the 28 floors. <laughs> oh, my scared God. The, scared the shit out of everybody uh, at a party. So it was great. It was really fun. And it suited me. Uh I, I wanted to be countercultural. I wanted to be in the music scene. I'd grown up um, uh, in North Carolina, and my dad was a mailman, and he'd take me to the post office on Saturday to yeah. sort mail, and I'd take the magazines, and the two I cared about were Sports Illustrated and Rolling Stone. Right? They were my access to the world of sports. Remember? Those, those were my two as a yeah. kid in the 70s. And you remember you got Sports Illustrated on a Wednesday and yeah. read about the USC-UCLA game that you right, didn't four see. four days earlier, yeah. yeah. that you didn't see uh, because it was, there was only one game on television. So that was access to that. And then Rolling Stone was the guide to the music scene and the counterculture. And, you know, that uh, those, those were the two things that sort of formed me in terms of the world of publishing that and sort of reading a bunch of books. So you were sales initially, and then you moved more into no, editorial? I was, right? I was secretary initially. I was an intern. Yeah. So I was hired But I mean, as after a, you moved up. I, I was hired as an intern and then moved up. No, I moved up to the circulation department. Okay. I ran newsstand sales for a year or two. I ran subscriptions. I did the business models, um, working directly for a guy named Kent Brownridge, who sort of ran the business for Jan. Yeah. So I would come in as... Kent's guy who would run the models for what the next three years were going to look like. And, um, and Jan's how difficult is he on a scale? One to 10 at that point. Well, he's, it's both, right? Jan is a one and a 10. If, if you walk in at the right moment, he yeah. couldn't be more charming. He puts his arm around you. He tells you how great you are. And if you walk in at the wrong moment. He's 
difficult and moody and and uh, he did you know ultimately fire me we we share this in common i was fired for insubordination is that true <laughs> yes <laughs> i was i was the publisher of us magazine 10 years after i started and uh jan wanted me to do some things which i resisted and said i thought i understood better than he did forgetting in my mind that i didn't actually own the magazine he did and then and he's, so he said he showed you the door i was dismissed really yeah I don't think I knew that part. Uh, so what happened after Rolling Stone? After Rolling Stone, I needed a job. So uh, I went and worked for Spin for a year. So some guys in the music business, Steve Swid and um, uh, David Horowitz had invested in Spin. So I went to work with Bob uh, Guccione Jr. They were all great to me. I mean, yeah. I was on the rebound. Uh, I was dismissed at Rolling Stone in January of 1990 and went to work for Spin about three weeks later. And how did ESPN happen? Uh, ESPN happened because, uh, spin, you know, I had small, small kids and lived out in the suburbs and spin was a bunch of 22 year olds. Um, and just, it, it wasn't the right thing for me to do, but it did give me a good transition. And then Disney hired me, got him Michael Linton to come out and work in California. Michael and, Linton, the future Sony guy. Yeah. Oh, so Michael hired me at Disney yeah. to start booking magazine um uh companies and i my original my first assignment was to manage disney adventures a little pocket-sized magazine for kids based Don't on remember topolino one. in italy yeah um and i was 19 the end of 90 into 91 so i was in publishing there till 97 in 97 96 i think disney bought abc cap cities which owned espn a guy named Steve Bornstein yeah. told Michael Eisner, I want to start a magazine. And Michael said, we got a magazine guy named Skipper. And uh, he put me together with John Walsh. And we did a prototype with Walter Bernard of uh, with Alan Iverson on the cover yeah. of a magazine that was a cross between Sports Illustrated and Rolling Stone. Oh, that was the right? initial prototype? Yeah. I mean, basically. I just remember the every two weeks thing and well, thinking... Oh, and you made a big deal from the beginning. We're looking ahead. Mm -hmm. Things are moving. The internet's coming. We don't want to go backwards. We want to look forward we, to. Look, we understood one thing very clearly because it was ESPN, which was because of ESPN, you're getting a magazine on Wednesday yeah. to describe what happened at the Masters or the Super Bowl on Saturday or Sunday it was ridiculous because you'd watched it on SportsCenter ad nauseum for three or four days and they never budged from being a news magazine. So we decided, remember the first cover had Kobe Bryant, um, uh, Eric Lindros. Oh yeah. It was all people who were about to become somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And it was called, and it had a big next on it. Yeah. And it was a very brash statement that we're next. You know, the, the old way of doing sports magazines is, is over. Wasn't really. I mean, and we're talking '97, right? This is an interesting it lost time. March of '98. '98, interesting time for ESPN because I feel like Sports Center had broken through. Yeah, in a, in a huge way and created all these stars. And I think the commercials were already going at that point. Yes. And the company's moving in this direction of all right, how do we blow this out in every conceivable way? Yes. Which, for better or worse, defined I think the next ten years. Yeah, I mean, Steve Bornstein really was the guy who had the vision that, look, we're going to create a multimedia company. 
We want to be in the radio business. We want multiple channels. We want a magazine. Steve desperately wanted a weekly magazine. He wanted to go head to head. He wanted to battle him. Yeah, he wanted to battle him. Steve was a battler. Yeah. Um, and was a fabulous boss. And it was fun. And uh, I can I and John Walsh convinced him we're gonna go every two weeks. And um, and we went to the printing press that did Rolling Stone every other week. And we hired them and I actually called my friend John. We had reconciled and uh, said, John, I got a good deal for you. We're going to print at the same place. And I bet you we can both save some money. The printer will be busy every other week. And uh, that it, the magazine was exactly like Rolling Stone. We yeah. put on the same paper. I went to the same paper supplier. And so one week they printed Rolling Stone. One week they printed uh, ESPN magazine. And we did also go to the post office. I threw my dad's name around, letter carrier <laughs> from Lexington, North Carolina. And we convinced the post office that we were publishing a weekly magazine. But we were publishing it every other week. Right. And uh, they granted us the same service that a weekly got. I think it's the first time it had ever happened. Really? And it was expedited service. So we would print on Monday and you would get the magazine by Wednesday, which is what happened with Sports Illustrated. Rolling Sun was printing on Monday and you'd get it about Saturday. Yeah. Right. Um, well, and- the magazine was... I would say really successful the first 10 years, right? At, what was the heyday? How much were you making from the magazine? Was the it heyday, like 20 million, 30 million a year, right? Look, the heyday probably had 150 million in revenue and probably made 30, 40 million dollars. Yeah. And it's thrown in the parties and all the other stuff. It, it just flew. What was the heyday? Like mid 2000s? Because I think good. I was renting for it at that point. Um, yeah, probably. Look, I, it, oddly enough, and I have to actually. Remember this, it seems wrong, but it yeah. was right. I We launched the magazine in March of 1998. And as of January of 2000, I'd moved to run ESPN.com. Yeah. So I actually was only there to supervise about, you know, probably 50 issues. And uh, I think I, I think Michael Rooney took over at that point. I think he became familiar. the uh, next head of ESPN magazine. And I moved out to run what had been called ESPN Sportsnet. Right, and yet they're or, outsourcing it in Seattle. and the- it, was, it had been done by Starwave. Disney, ESPN had bought the rights to back. They'd had a couple of uh, people running it, and uh, uh, it wasn't going great. ESPN yeah. was, actually it wasn't very good. It wasn't. I mean, it was sort of HTML text and... You know, did scores and they uh, and fantasy. The entire internet was pretty bad back then, though. It's not like anybody was was running away from the pack. No, everything was ugly. Yeah. Everything was ugly. I do think that one thing that John Walsh and I brought to it was a magazine sensibility. Yeah. I immediately went in and said, we got to have photographs and we got to have typefaces and we had to have layouts so the thing looks good. And I was met by a bunch of guys who came in with data that said, do you know how long this will take to load on dial-up? And I'm like, I don't really care. Yeah. I said, they're going to figure that technological problem out at some point. Yeah. And we're going to win because it'll look great. We'll do photographs and we're going to hire good writers. Well, I remember right around then, I don't know if you were running it at that point, but they convinced Gammons to give up the Boston Globe com completely and just write for the website. And I always felt like that was like the first most important moment in in sports journalism on the internet because- that got somebody like my dad to be like, yeah. okay, 
now I have to figure out how to get on this website because Gammons is there. Remember the Gammons? Gammons column was the, the most Boston important Globe? column. Yeah. I think it was two pages, was it? Yeah, least- it, was, it was like 15 minutes long to read. I bought the Boston Globe on Sunday as a New Yorker just to read the Gammons dot, dot, dot. Here's the another. most important. It was fabulous. So, you, so ESPN gets that. By the way, that was John It really Walsh. felt like a moment. That was John Walsh, right? John Walsh, Vince Doria, yeah. who was ran news at ESPN, had been Peter's editor. John Walsh was a close friend, uh, and John convinced him to come over. Look, it was followed pretty quickly by Hunter Thompson. Well, you, la- you launched page two, spent some money on it. Spence Ralph a- Wiley, Halberstam. Yep. Halberstam, and pretty quickly, the sports guy. Yeah, not not me initially, though. Now, when, I, did, I remember taking that? it personally. When, what year uh, was that? I think page two launched in 2000, but you didn't, you didn't come get me until spring of 2001. Cause I wrote this. I, it was the second time I did it. It was a better piece, but I, I remember I, I did a running diary of making fun of the ESPYs. Uh, yes. And somehow Walsh saw it. I remember that very clearly. I remember and that story. It got passed around ESPN and Walsh saw it. He was like, Oh, where's this guy? And started reading me. And then they asked me to write about, uh, Nomar had blown out his wrist in April, 2001. So they asked me to write a piece about it. I remember that. Piece so I wrote as well. that. They asked me to write another one. They oh. asked me to write another one. And then eventually I came in and saw Walsh. Yeah. That was all in 2001? Yeah, it was spring 2001. Yeah. So and then. Uh, you should feel pretty good about that company, though. Those other guys were easier to find. David Halberstam and Ralph Wiley. You were the first I big was, new voice, right? These guys, we went and bought. They were established voices. Yeah, established voices. And it gave us credibility. And it was smart because people were like, Hunter Thompson's on the internet? What? Yeah. I mean, that was like, it, that was a major gimmick at the time. Look, I'm quite proud of the fact that we were the last home for Halberstam, Wiley, and Hunter Thompson, right? Their last war basically was on. And then we were the 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 first national platform for you. I guess well, Sports Guy was national, but you know what I mean. No, I mean, but that was a big thing of... When I remember you guys hired me officially mm-hmm. and I spent five weeks trying to figure out, I took, I asked for five weeks off cause I've been working for like four years straight. Right. And I remember I took five weeks and I really tried to figure out how a national column would work. Right. Cause nobody had really done it. Right. You know, it was like, everything was local. Everything was local newspaper columns. Yeah. And it was like, how do I try to hit everybody? So that was when I like really leaned into the pop culture. Yeah. Again, at that point, the only really national sports columns were in Sports Illustrated. And they Rick were 800 the, words once a week. Yeah, Rick yeah. Riley on the, on the back page. I think he was, was already it. on the back page, right? That he point. was, yeah. but it was 800 words once a week, and they were really broad. Mm-hmm. But it still seemed like, it seemed like a lot of the stuff should translate across the country. But it, it yeah. still, there was nobody to point to, which was weird. But well, the weird thing was being on the, on the same site with all those dudes. Because like Hammerstein was my, my breaks of the game is my favorite book ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hunter was a legend. Yep. Hey, it was just Ralph Wiley. I mean, all, all those dudes, and it, it was, you know, and then uh, leading the page over them, and be like they're leading with me over Halberstam. Like yeah. it was, it was hard to uh, wrap your head around. Well, became uh, again. I mean it genuinely, sincerely. You know, I do. Those guys were really important to us. They gave us credibility. Yeah. But you were the first guy who, in a big way, connected with who our audience was, right? Just like with all new platforms, it was, it was young, it was kids, right? And it was, at that point, it was overwhelmingly male, just was, was 90, I forget. We used to be 95% male. And young. And very young. And, uh, and it connected. I remember when we were figuring out Grantland, like, I don't know, nine years later, Mm -hmm. 
it's kind of the same motto about you launch a site with some big names, but they're not even that. It's really the younger people that are going to be the ones that carry the site. The big names get, you know, give you some recognizability and credibility, but you know, the people like Dave Eggers and Gladwell and like they wrote like once or twice for Grantland, but we could put them in the press release. You you know, Dave Eggers was an original magazine guy. From ESPN, the magazine. Yeah. 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 He and a guy named Zev Barrow uh, came as a pair. I can't remember why, but uh, they were, they wrote some of the notes column stuff up front. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. When did you f- feel like the website really was turning into something? Something that could actually be the most relevant place for sports, but also make money? We, um, I think we created a great product and I think it was resonating. And then we did a big deal with Microsoft. For Microsoft, for ESPN to be the sports content on Microsoft. When Microsoft was the was the company everybody feared, you know, there's yeah. always a company everybody fears. And in those days it was Microsoft. And uh, <laughs> I did a deal. Now with, it's seven companies. <laughs> yeah, with a guy named Youssef Mehdi, a good guy. And suddenly ESPN went from 7 million uniques a month to like 20 million uniques. And we leapfrogged, uh, I think it was Sportsline. Remember yeah. Sportsline? Sportsline was a big competitor. They were the leader. Well, they had point. a lot of fantasy, I remember. Yahoo and Sportsline had more fantasy. Yahoo, and, and I made the mistake of, because we were making money on uh, fantasy. Yeah. And I didn't want to give up the money. Yeah. Because it was a very small business. Uh, I think ESPN.com was like $22 million, $25 million of revenue uh, in 2000. And I think, Fantasy was three or four or five million of that. So I didn't want to give it up. Big mistake. Because um, uh, when we went free with fantasy was the next leap. Yeah. And we made the calculation that people got the content. We then were, we we parted company with Microsoft because uh, new management came in and they wanted us to pay them yep. to be on Microsoft. And I said, I think people will come stay with us. That was when MSN.com was... A, a lot of people had emails there. Yes. So you would go to their front page to get e- your email and, and they would be pumping like four stories and it was always ESPN was one of the four. Yes. And then we lost that traffic. We lost that traffic, uh, but we didn't actually ever lose traffic. We stayed at 20, 25 million, yeah. 30, 40, 50. And I think now it's, you know, frequently doing a hundred million. I remember the first the time we ever hung out was this Patriots Rams Super Bowl, ironically. Yes. It was in New Orleans. And you wanted to have lunch with me. So it was me, you, and Walsh. Uh-huh. And at the time, I had just written this piece that I thought was funny, but um, but everyone in New Orleans was bad at me. Remind me. I had made fun of New Orleans. I would written this piece about how making fun of New Orleans, but I loved it anyway, just like right. the city. 
and the locals got really mad and it was, you know, I felt like my life was like in danger practically. Yeah. And it, during that whole time we had lunch and we talked. And then I think the next time I saw you was when Kimmel was trying to hire me. Uh, yes. And we, we had some event and I was explaining to you why I wanted to, mm-hmm. why, no, this isn't right. Actually, there was another time I had, I had a bad contract and you gave me a raise. That was the second time. Yeah. You put me in ESPN magazine. Yep. We had a big talk. It's funny. I think you there fixed was a, it. Yeah. I think there was some ambivalence about whether you wanted to be in the magazine or not. Or was there? Cause that, cause of the word count. Yeah. Yeah. So then the third time was the Kimmel thing. Yep. And I remember you handled it in a way, and it was, a, it was actually a really good lesson for me as a mm-hmm. boss and as somebody who's in charge of people, like, you weren't like super protective of it. You heard it out. You wanted to know why I wanted to do it. And then you tried to help me make it happen. I was like, and it was one of those things that I don't know if you did it intentionally or not, but after that, I was like, that's my guy. That If that guy needs me, I, I got him. By the way, it turned out to be a good experience for you, right? It was I mean, great. You, I remember uh, coming into the, you know, you'd have had me on the show and I'd come and we'd hang out a little bit and I'd yeah. go see the show. Uh, and it gave you experience. It allows you to do what you're doing now. And look, I, uh, my sense is you should try to accommodate people when you can. Yes. And um, and at the time, of course, you know, I was personally involved, right? I, I and and I wanted to have the long. The fact that it was on ABC was helpful. I think yeah. if it was NBC. I don't know if probably maybe you couldn't have probably been wouldn't have done it. But I have. I did. I did do at least one deal for somebody who wanted to go to NBC. True. At one point. True. Uh-oh. And but uh, what was interesting about that though was. It still felt like the internet at that point was a launching pad to go do other things. Because right. it was like, ah, what am I going to write a column on the, on the mm. internet for 20 years? Yeah. And then when I came out here, and then you realized how big ESPN.com was. Yeah. And so many people knew the column and knew page two. And in Boston, you're in this little bubble. You have no, you know, you have no right. idea. You don't oh. realize it's like everybody's getting the internet. Yeah. So it's, at some point I was like, did I make a mistake? Giving up that column, like I had a pretty big platform. I didn't realize it was as big as it was. Um, and it well, was. you didn't ultimately because when you came back, it was still there, right? And you'd had a different kind of experience, got you to L.A. No, that all of it was it's, great. It, it's funny. I have a hard time remembering the sequencing of it, but yeah, I do remember that. I came back, uh, yeah, I came back in 04 and then stayed on after that. So, uh-huh. But it felt like 04, at that point, you talked about the dial-up and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The internet had really come into play at that point. Now the websites are loading faster. The content's yeah. better. It looks nicer. And, and everybody's in the internet now. Yeah. And we'd figured out, we'd figured out how to use the magazine and the television. Right. And all kind of work together to promote everything. I mean, again, it was the culmination of Steve's sort of vision that we're going to be a multimedia group company. Steve had left to run, uh, I think he went to ABC and then he was running uh, go.com and George, was the boss and 05 is when I became yeah. the head of content at ESPN. So it really, but, and by the way, four was the year I ran sales at ESPN. So in four, they, um, they sort of, I actually wasn't there for one of the years you were at Kimmel. I actually had gone to run the sales group right at ESPN then came back to be the head of content when you came back. And you had, so 05 is an interesting ESPN year because at that point, they've expanded left and right and tried to do all these things. Mm-hmm. It was the first time there was like a backlash that you could kind of feel against ESPN. And it was the 25th anniversary. Yeah. The Gatorade. ESPN yep. The Zone. Yep. And 
probably seven other things I can't remember. But it was the first time people were like, hey, fuck ESPN. They're in my life too much. I think it's hard to be cuddly. Yeah. Right? When you just keep getting bigger and bigger and the company was extraordinarily uh, successful financially and it was in people's lives and we're starting new channels and uh, and overreached in a couple areas. People don't really need to eat at ESPN. The, 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 that was a bad idea. <laughs> right. Ultimately, you don't need to eat there. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's the but, phone. We forgot the phone. The phone. Oh my god! The phone. The phone. I, I was, know a lot. Of, the, the phone belatedly worked out because a lot of the technology for the phone ended up um, being used in all these different ways. Uh, basically, it 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 provided the infrastructure, the technology, and a lot of the people who ultimately made ESPN Mobile, Mobile yeah. ESPN, uh, the leader. But it was a it was a disaster uh, when we did it, and I was in charge of it. I actually had to get through that. Uh, but to the company's credit. Uh, you could have a disaster. We convinced ourselves that um, that people would buy an ESPN phone, and it was an overreach. You didn't need to call with an ESPN phone or eat an ESPN restaurant. I actually restaurant. feel like if it had been called like Blade or something like that, well, there it was might a, had a better chance. There was a phone called Blade. Or, oh, Razor or Razor, Blade. whatever. But yeah. if it didn't have ESPN in the name, and yeah. it was just like this phone made by ESPN, it might have had a better it, chance. It, well, if we'd have gone and done a deal with a telephone right, company exactly. to do a branded phone. We that was the better idea. There was a little bit of hubris involved, and I, I was part of it, which was we can do anything. And we underestimated that the phone companies were quite formidable and they were not going to allow a branded phone where we actually. Oh, so you felt like you got boxed out a little bit. Oh, yeah. They uh, look, these this is was partly responsible, not completely, but partly responsible. This, remember, this is the days when it was like, if you want to get four phones for your family, they'll be free. And yeah. the next week we ran an ad in the Super Bowl that said, or you could spend $400 <laughs> on an ESPN phone. Everybody's like, why would I spend $400 on yeah. the ESPN phone? <laughs> what are you guys I, doing? The AT&T will give me four phones for free. Yeah. And, um, and it was all based on, this is r- ridiculously obscure, was based on, uh, I think it was an act of Congress, that number portability, that you had to be able to take your phone number from one carrier to the other. And lots of believe people believe that that would make people switch carriers more often and it didn't instead the carriers went we'll give you free phones we'll give you six months and so nobody switched uh and we were the good news is we did it for about nine months lost a couple hundred million bucks and moved on uh kept about a but uh, somehow got intelligence from it that might have actually made it worth it, other than the embarrassment of just failing with a phone yeah but it was okay we moved on and, and you, you, you had the money back then. Pardon? Yeah, though ESPN had the money in 2006, and 7 to take look, some chances. They, they did. And by the way, uh, if you don't take chances and fail every now and then, it's a mistake. And and probably uh, if there was hubris, it's because we hadn't actually made many mis- missteps, right? So you make a few missteps, and now you had a good run. After 2005, ESPN had a fabulous run. It was no longer cuddly, right? It was no longer, and it was difficult and this has been a little bit thematic in my life, it became difficult to be countercultural, right? ESPN yeah. was the disruptor. They were having fun. They were uh, they were cool. Well, you become the Yankees. You become the Yankees, hard to be cool, yeah. right? I mean, in some ways the Cubs were cooler when, when they were cuddly. Uh, and when uh, they became winners, it's not quite as cuddly. The Cubs are still cuddly. Well, I remember, so I signed a new deal in 07, mm-hmm. and then in 08, that was like the first time we ever battled over something was I wanted to have Obama on my podcast. 
Yeah. And there was some ESPN rule we, in place. And, and we should let you. But yeah, there was it a rule. It was like spring. And by the way, nobody knew what the F a podcast was at that point, barely. Yes. I had had it for a year, but it was like very early stages. It's funny. I'd forgotten about that. And I guess. I remember calling you and being like, this guy's going to be the president. And no. I can have him on my podcast. But there were the, all these other political thing. I, I've gotten over it. It's, Maybe it, like three years ago. It's interesting. I never thought of that as sort of the derivation of a that of a thing that ended up running through my presidency, right? Which is, is ESPN a political organization? That was the touch point for it. And, because that was the first time where it, w- it was like, well, you have to have equal time. It's like, well, why? How am I going to, this guy who just wants to come up with a podcast and shoot the shit about sports. Yeah. And um, I probably was sympathetic to we should do it. And um, George Bodenheimer was president at the time. The com- John Walsh was very doctrinal about that. We, you know, we don't do this. Yeah. And I probably chafed against that a little bit as you did. And, um, uh, that's funny. It, it, it clearly was the first chapter in what became, you know, Trump tweeting about, you know, ESPN's political. It was the start of a 10 year something. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, I remember I was having some issues with jokes I could get in and my schedule. And we ended up, at some point, we had this big meeting in uh, in the LA Live building, which wasn't done yet. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure if I was going to get fired. And we had this big power and we quickly realized like, oh yeah, we should, let's figure this out. It took like five minutes. Yeah. But it was it was the first time I remember there was some acrimony. But then it was fine after that for See, a long time. Well, the book, you remember the book? The ESPN the, book. The ESPN book. Um, I told the story in the book, I think. Did you? I mean, it was, but, but I remember the book when... Uh, John Moss called me and he's like, I've marked like 55 places in the book that we need to go over and we need to talk to Bill about what's in the book. And uh, look, it was hard. ESPN wasn't, it was an upstart and a disruptor. It was never particularly countercultural, right? Everybody always agreed the grooviest thing about ESPN in some ways was the commercials. The sports center commercials were much more subversive than the actual content on the air. Right. Um, and it gave ESPN the halo of, of subversive, disruptive. But when you actually watched it, it was much more solidly grounded in sort of journalism and ethics and, and rules. And this is the way we do things here. And, um, by the uh, way, that book, uh, that, that book came out in 2011 cause it was right after we launched Grantland uh, and Walsh was, Walsh was there uh, and got the copy of the book. And went into an empty office for six straight hours and read the book. And we would stand outside the door and just listen to him cackling and talking to himself about yeah. it. Oh, oh, that, oh, that never happened. And just like, he's just running commentary. I wish I had, we didn't have Apple phones back then. I would have yeah. just been taping it. I read the manuscript of the book in a Jeep driving from Johannesburg to oh, Jesus, you're on vacation? Blomfontein. No, I was at the World Cup in South oh. Africa. Oh, and and got the manuscript, and on the way from, I'd read it once before, but read it a second time. Going, it was from Johannesburg to Blomfontein, and my recollection yeah. is that takes about six hours. And I read the entire book. Uh, I didn't have too many objections to it, right? I mean, it, it, he did. Jim Miller wrote it. He did a good job. I I gave one interview that like two weeks later, I was like, oh shit, he's probably going to use a lot of that stuff. But I think a lot of people, the thing I didn't realize was a lot of people were in that situation Yeah, where uh, 
you know, you end up, especially if you get comfortable with something, you say three things and those end up being the three things. Yeah. It was a good book. It was fun. It was remember, was- remember, you wanted to actually, which I thought was a good idea, establish a Hall of Fame that was Sports Book Hall of Fame. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, it was alive. There would be 50 players and you'd actually have oh, to the, take- Oh, the pyramid. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. pyramid. You yeah. actually had to take somebody out at some point. Like a cocktail. Which like is a, a, like fabulous, a, cocktail club. a fabulous concept. Yeah. Um, but a little too- a yeah. little too difficult for the the leagues yeah. to deal with. So 07, I had signed a new deal. And part of the deal was to get more involved with the content side. Yeah. Which I was really excited about. And sent you a memo, you and Walsh, mm-hmm. for, and I had the title in the memo, the right. 30 for 30. Uh-huh. But the premise was basically, it was two things. HBO has taken sports documentaries. Right. Why are we allowing that to happen? Um, we put out a ton of content. Nobody knows which ones to watch. Mm-hmm. We're putting out too much stuff. Mm-hmm. And then our anniversary is coming up and we love celebrating anniversaries. And this was two years earlier. Our anniversary was 09. Yeah. So it was like uh, something about this makes sense. Yeah. And you were like, go develop it. Yep. And I, by the way, I think we remember that the, you, you mentioned it before, the 25th anniversary hadn't gone over very well, right? It was a bunch of lists and the 25 right. greatest. This is, I'm sorry, this is the 30th anniversary. Yeah, yeah. this was the 30th. But I think part of the reason for the idea was reaction to let's do something that'll be fun and different. And I do remember talking about this will be for the fans, right? It'll be a a treat, a surprise. It won't be a bunch of lists and here's the greatest ranking of the last 30 years. And you had the concept, let's do 30 films for 30 years. Well, I remember initially it was 10, 10, and 10. And I think it was like like 10 on players, 10 on teams, 10 on events. Yeah. And then eventually we just threw it out. Once we started meeting with filmmakers, it, they would always come up with their own idea and be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Let's do that. Well, you remember we sat in a room at the Ritz-Carlton Battery Park, bunch of people, right? Well, that's when we didn't know if it was going to happen or not. Right. Because um, some people didn't want it to happen. Some people didn't want it to happen. I was in charge of content. We, we were doing so well financially. You had enough money to be yeah. able to launch an E60, to be able to hire writers and do things. And remember, we put a big wax board up and sort of said, yeah. gee, you got to sort of look at the 80s, 90s, and zeros and sort of think about that. Here's sports. You got to think about and Don't forget NASCAR. Don't forget, you know, uh, women's tennis. And we said, it's got to be diverse and it's got to it's got to have a variety of themes. And we decided it's going to be a mosaic. It's not going to be a history or a chronological series. But if you watch these 30 films, You'll have a pretty good idea of the things that mattered. Yeah, these aren't the best 30 stories. They're just 30 stories. 30 stories. And we're yeah. going to hire 30 filmmakers, which was a, a direct, you know, again, like the magazine being different, being next relative to Sports Illustrated. The HBO at that time was the standard. And you got to figure out an alternative. And they're to pretty the arrogant, too. Well, it's, you know, once when you're when you're killing it. Because we were launching our thing and they were just like, oh, that great. Good luck with that. Yeah. We're still the leaders. I do remember it also was spectacular financially. We had a contract. Somebody had the idea. I, it was I Connor. Connor. That yeah. look, every filmmaker has we a We don't want to negotiate with each person. Yeah, and every filmmaker has a sports story they want to tell. One of the very first ones we signed up was Barry Levinson. Yeah. Who had grown up in Baltimore and had the story of the Baltimore Colts band that never quit playing, even though the Colts, Ursay took the Colts to um, yeah. 
to um, Indianapolis. Indianapolis. The band stayed behind, and on opening day, they would show up in the stadium and play. And Barry Levinson did a spectacular film. I cannot remember the name of it. About, it was the band that wouldn't die. Yeah, the band that wouldn't die. Well, once we got him, then we could go get other people. Because yeah, that was the Peter thing we Burton. realized. It was like, all right, we had Barry Levinson, Pete Berg, Mike Tolan. But then you'd have the next meeting. You'd be like, we had these three guys. They'd be like, really? Yeah. And, and then we, it was like validated. And we have one contract. And we told everybody, <laughs> you have to sign it. Right. And it was, you're going to make a documentary for $500,000. Right. We own the rights to everything in perpetuity throughout the universe on every device ever known to man or to the ever invented by man in the future. Or man by or the way, woman. people thought that was too high back then. Now it's like a bargain. So it, there was, look, you took was, some heat on it that was one. $15 million. Yeah. And people are like, you're going to spend $15 million. And uh, it was, it was, it was yeah. actually probably even more than that. Cause you throw in like a little extra. It was marketing. Here and there marketing. Was 20 yeah, million yeah. Bucks. Um, I think the interesting thing about 30 for 30 is we never ever realized that they would be rewatchable and that they could just be thrown on the schedule. Yeah. That was a, not one person at any point in the planning thought somebody would watch the fab five, eight times. We just didn't no, see it. No, the, well, the company had done one enormous project, Sports Century, right? The turn of the century. Right. And that content, well, other than being on Classic all the time, wasn't really reusable, right? True. Um, it, be, it basically became So the company had no experience with the idea that it would be evergreen content that you could put up on ESPN 1 and 2 forever. By the way, they still run them, and they're still fabulous. They still hold up. It's crazy. I do remember the next year kind of going, well, we should keep doing films. And uh, again, I can't remember. And we were going to call it something different. We spent a long time figuring out what the right brand is. ESPN Films Presents. I, I was trying to throw my body in front of it. Yeah, I think you did. And we decided, <laughs> why in the world would we no, just No, we not did it for like a few. We did a few that were called ESPN Film Presents. You're right. I think what happened was new people came in charge and who weren't affiliated with 3030. And they, yeah. you know, you want your own thing at that point. But eventually, I think we were putting out these documentaries and people were just calling them 30 for 30s and they weren't even 30 for 30s. So at that point we realized, yeah. all right, this is and, stupid. And look, you had a little thing where the company was in Bristol and was about Bristol. And this was kind of a group of people who were in New York. True. And, and there'd never been sort of a renegade. I mean, the magazine in some ways was a renegade project, right? Built in New York, but that was okay. Cause it was publishing, now you're suddenly making television and you're making television with a bunch of people who were in New York and not up in Bristol. And um, I think there were some people who thought we should be doing it in Bristol. And and uh, I remember when we launched um, Sports Center in Los Angeles, it was controversial. And there were people who didn't think that we should be overt that we were actually doing this from Los Angeles. Right. remember ESPN, they didn't really, other than Bristol University, they didn't kind of say from Bristol, Connecticut. True. They, Eric Rideholm was producing um, PTI in Washington, D.C., and it never yeah. really said. By the way, I never succeeded in that. I always wanted to sort of show a picture of the Capitol before before uh, part of the interruption and be about, gee, we're in Washington, D.C., we're in Los Angeles. I did insist on it for Dan LeBetard's show in Miami, right? We're going to do Miami. Which I think we're it's going to, up. We're going on the beach and yeah. we're going to show the beach. And people are like, you don't want to do that. Um, yeah, I do uh, think. I'm not quite sure why, but. Yeah, I remember when we were launching 30 for 30, like they they weren't promoting it really that much. Yeah. Which I think weirdly worked in our benefit, but I always felt like there was a little resentment toward it. Yeah. So then 09, I, I, my basketball book came out too. Mm -hmm. Website's going great. I end up doing another deal and that's when the Grantland thing happened. 
Uh, and that th- was that was uh, 2010. Mm-hmm. I had this idea for a website. Mm-hmm. Talked you in Washington to it at mm-hmm. the Trump Soho, mm-hmm. ironically. Is that where it was? <laughs> yeah. At the Trump Soho. <laughs> at the Trump Soho. Because that was at ESP Hotel. Uh, stay, Walsh would stay at the Trump. Walsh always stayed at the Trump the International Trump in, uh, right at Columbus Circle. Yeah. This was at Trump Soho for some reason. Yeah. And, uh, and it was basically, hey, let's try well, to do this website that has long form, all this other weird stuff. We'll find some new talent. And you're like, great, let's go. Yeah, and, and and we did, and it was fabulous. Look, the um, I think, uh, and, and I was, my job was still the head of content. You were one of the most important voices we had, and right, I always started the discussions by saying, "What do you want to do? Yeah, let's figure out what you want to do next." Because everything you'd done had helped us, and um, you wanted to start a website. I'm like, let's start a website. It was also not universally popular that we were going to spend money on. A sort of again, kind of countercultural, kind of literary. Yeah, and it was a moment in time too when people were kind of going long form is dead. You know, it was um, the blogs thing it was shorter, shorter, faster, more, 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 and seemed we, to be the the and, model. And which we, we didn't agree. I've with. always believed. I still don't believe it. So many people read now on phones. Yeah, that yeah. it is just really hard to read. I I think. It is That's really why hard. the ringer has, I mean, it's different for a lot of reasons than Grantland, but um, it's just, that site was designed for desktops. Yeah. You know, when it, in it, 2010, we were like, we want people to read it on their computer. We did, there wasn't even iPads back then. No. I, look, I've made a really hard transition for me towards reading the New York Times overwhelmingly on my phone. Yeah. It's crazy, right? And it's crazy. So when they do one of those investigative stories, it leads into a double truck. In the newspaper, which is 6,000, 8,000 words, I can't really get through it on the phone. I mean, I, I I may love, there's a big story today on Purdue Pharma, right? And it's, I I read it on my phone. You're like turning it sideways. It And it's hard. I did not get to the end of it. Um, if I had the paper, I am pretty sure that probably is a, it's on the front page. I'm pretty sure it probably is page, I'm making it up, seven and eight. And is a spectacular piece of investigative journalism. It is one of the things that should worry everybody, right? Is that it's hard to do that in a three-minute video. There is something about a long-form piece that somebody has spent months on, read documents, that sort of matters culturally um, and should matter to the citizens of the country. We'll move on from this, but... uh, I don't know how you do that on a phone. I, I can't. I was right doing it, riding a bike this then morning. Then we sound like old guys on the couch a little bit, but I agree with you. It's just like, it's the way things are going and there's no way to stop it, but I'm with you. It's uh, it's not the same reading experience, but then, you know, I watch it with my kids. The, the phone is just popping up and they're on Instagram. Yeah. There are all these different things. They're on their text, Snapchat. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget being at South by Southwest in the groovy hotel and going to the concierge. And I think almost as a moment of pride, I'm like, you, you have the Sunday Times are like, uh, no, we don't, but we we do have a digital subscription. If you put your room number in, you can watch it. I'm like, no, no, I want to go find the paper. I remember going to get the paper, walking through the lobby, and feeling like I was. Yeah, you're holding a newspaper. Yeah, yeah. I was holding a newspaper, and I feel like people were staring at me like, well, you're wearing a zoot suit. <laughs> so we launched Grandland. Mm-hmm. The next year, mm-hmm. 
George decides he's leaving. Mm-hmm. And you get that job. January of 2012. So, yeah, we launched. You had a feeling you were going to get that job, but we didn't know for sure. Um, I didn't have any feeling that George was going to retire. I felt that was shocking. I felt that, um, I felt that I was best equipped at the company to be the next president. But, uh, I remember saying to George, George, as long as you stay, I'm fine. I love this job. Yeah. Um, but we had to, when you did your annual review, you actually, there was like a box you had to fill in and say, what job, what's your next job do you want? And I remember saying, if, if you leave, I want to be president. Yeah. If you don't, I'm fine. I'll keep doing this job for the next 10 years. It's a great I'm job. Happy. It's a great job. So in some ways, it's a better job than being the president. <laughs> Not, I, th- I would say it all, <laughs> always, except financially. Look, it's interesting. Somebody recently asked me, at, at what moment did you kind of have the most fun? Yeah. Uh, the magazine is right up there. Starting the website's right up there. In success, you will inevitably get into jobs that are more financially rewarding, that have more influence. And those things are intoxicating and and matter, right? Changes how, how your family lives. It changes what you do. But they're hard to be fun because they are so overwhelming. Well, I remember you you called me and you told me that this was going to happen. Yeah. And my my instant reaction, because I'm an only child, I'm selfish, was like, this is bad. This is <laughs> whatever the current arrangement right now is going great. Yeah. I love it the way it is right now. And you're like, no, no, this is great. This is going to be awesome. I'm moving up. I'm going to be in charge of everything. This is yeah. all good. It's I'm good. like, yeah, well, no, I remember that conversation. I was like, well, but it's really good now. <laughs> I like, I like it. I yeah. like the way things are going today. It, it turned out to be right about that. You yeah, turned out to right. be right. I, I did. I love the job. It was really fun. And well, they, within a year, I remember watching from afar, and it just seemed like it seemed like you were on a plane all the time. Yeah. And I, I would call Denise and be like, "Where's Skipper?" She's like, "Oh, he's in." He's in Italy talking to the Syria, whatever, and then yeah. he's flying to Zimbabwe, and then he has to go to Antarctica to find the uh, the X Games yeah. Antarctica, and then he's flying to France. And I'm like, all right, yeah. Well, tell him, tell him I said hi. Yeah, but that yeah. was your job. I mean, that it's, job's crazy. And uh, you had what eight thousand employees? Oh, we had um, nine thousand. I don't. I can't quite remember. It was always misleading because if you sort of added up all the contractors and the people who were in trucks and you know, it's, and by the way, it is a responsibility. There's 20,000 people, 25,000 people whose livelihoods depend on ESPN. Yeah. And then they have families. So yeah, I always sort of had, I always felt that burden that, oh my gosh, we're responsible for people's colleges and houses. Yeah. And, and, uh, that's a good thing. I mean, and you know, I, I have a serious work ethic and it worked all the time. And, uh, and it was fun. Didn't leave a lot of time for uh, calling my old pals, and yeah, and and didn't leave a lot of time. I had trouble consuming the content. Remember, we were doing 20,000 and thirty thousand and fifty thousand and sixty five thousand, then eighty five thousand live hours a year, and we were producing at one point over a thousand pages of journalism a day, and you understood that. That we were doing, I forget once, I figured out we were doing eight, nine hours of television every hour, as well as the equivalent of what used to be the Sunday Times every day. So all you could do was read a tiny fraction of it. People ask me about other programs or things, and I'm like, I never watched Friends. I never watched anything because if I had a 
if I was in front of a television, I had to watch ESPN. Right. Because it would be people who were working. So you start stuff. losing your feel. You do, sort of, because you're really not, you, you can't really be in touch with everything that's going on and be at the cutting edge of things because you just don't have time. And you don't have time to read everything. And you're going to meetings and you're doing budgets and you're uh, involved in disciplinary actions and, yeah. you're, and somebody's unhappy or you're, you're trying to renew, right. trying to renew a contract, uh, a rights deal. Well, the thing that I thought, you know, look in the moment, it felt like two things were going on that I wish you had seen. One was, it, it was crazy that you didn't have like a chief of staff. Yeah. And I remember talking to you about that. I was like, how do you not have somebody uh, who just preps for Every and you're like, no, no, I'm my own guy. But would, it, it seemed like you should have had that sidekick who just like, all right, you have a meeting with AT and T at ten. Yeah, here's everything you need to know. Here are all the bullet points. But you wanted to like do everything. I was sort of stubbornly uh, unwilling to adapt in some ways to corporate life. You remember, you remember yeah. that commercial where the 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 guy in the corner office muses, you know, you know, I want to stick it to the man. Yeah, and yeah. this like this like young aide says, well, sir, you actually you are the man. So I had this. Countercultural streak, this anti-establishmentarian streak, and I prided myself. I'm the only guy running a, a big business who has one assistant right. and no chief of staff. All my peers at Disney had two assistants and something that would be called the assistant to the president. Right. And I'm like, no, I don't need all that. I can figure all this out. I was wrong. Um, and um, and you, I ended up with more things to handle than you could. I prided myself on returning every phone call, which at some point I did for a little while. I remember David Stern got mad at me one time for not returning his phone call. And it actually forced me into making sure that I either returned every call or I, I would have my assistant call and say, you can't call today, I'll call tomorrow. And I did every email every day. Well, I remember one time I went in your office and you were like, look at this. And it was an empty inbox. Yeah. You're like, I've answered every email. And I had like 4,000 unread emails in my email account. I was like, how are you doing this? You've worked all, you did it all the time. Yeah. You not did he- eventually not healthy. I did. Eventually not healthy. And uh, I did have a, a rule I would urge on everybody. I never opened an email and put it in a folder to deal with later. You just did it right away. I just did it I right away. that. Uh, he's That's unbe- He's unbelievable. Um, I, I, I at one point thought there must be some like secret operation where a bunch of people were answering his emails while he ate lunch. Nah. Because I'm like, he's got to be eating lunch right now. But I send him something and he answers me right away. Well, he sleeps like three hours. He's, uh, he's as, you know, I, I, I dealt with Jeffrey Katzenberg when I first got to ESPN, who was this. Who sleeps no hours. Who is like amazingly efficient. Yeah. I mean, he and and Bob get more stuff done, I think, than anybody. Yeah. I don't know how he does notes on Star Wars and goes to the park and, and checks out the new ride. I mean, it, it really is an extraordinary big job. I, I don't know how people do it. The other thing that I was worried about was you didn't, you didn't have, like, you inherited a lot of people that became your inner circle. Yeah. And I always felt like, even in the moment, like you, like, you got to create your own inner circle. Yeah. Like lots of things, right? The, they're the good and the bad is the same thing, right? So the fact that, I, that George had a staff that had been there forever and was stable was great, but it had the double edge of it kind of, most of them became sort of my guys, Yeah, but I didn't really change things up. And, and cause I remember Walsh saying, 
Skipper's got six months. And then that just becomes what your team is. And I was like, really? He was like, yeah, he's got six months. He's not wrong. I mean, look, people go in this sort of the hundred day theory that you got a hundred days to sort of look around and figure out what to do. And then you better do it because I guess it's the hundred days. And then the six months that Walsh was talking about, if you don't do anything, then you're where you are. Unless you're, unless you're Trump, then it's just every 20 days. You just change, change like three people. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I remember the, the, Politics definitely got dicier the, because um, you had, you said people grabbing territories. And that was, I, I was so naive with a lot of this stuff. And I never realized from my end, like mm-hmm. I was considered to be close to you, which was bad for me. And well, I created the, some, some resentments and politics. Yeah. It was like, and, fuck that guy. Yeah. Um, but the first time I really felt it was that time with the, uh, when, uh, when magic left countdown. And then I think the New York Times wrote a story or somebody wrote a story about that. We had had this power battle. And, oh, right, right, right. And yeah. I was like, what the fuck? I love yeah. magic. And yeah. that was the first time like I, and then I remember you and I got mad at each other about it, but I was like, this is insane. Why yeah. does this exist? Why would somebody do this? Yeah. But now I look back, I was like, man, I was naive. I should have, I should have been more uh, aware yeah. of this stuff. Yeah. Like most, again, like the same thing, naivete has a certain charm and innocence to it, but I, I was naive about some of the things. You mentioned the politics thing. I was sort of naive, right? I'm an idea I'm a little bit of an idealist and and uh wanted to change the world. We tried to use the ESPYs to change the world a little right. bit. I, I never I believe my own rhetoric that look, there's we're not playing politics. You know, we're we're involved in uh, in diversity and tolerance and opportunity for everybody. And how can that be political? It's been politicized in this country, but I didn't believe that celebrating the rights of people to have whatever, to be who they were, uh, was a good thing. And how could you be against that? You know, if, if, if Bruce Jenner felt that his, that he was Caitlyn Jenner, who's to say that he should deny himself, herself that. Right. And, and uh, I was a little naive that a lot of the world doesn't, think that i think and especially for me as pn side people were like can you guys just show us games and highlights and it's not and i don't i don't think i was with you on pretty much all of this stuff but i also like i look at what espn is now and it, it does make more sense as a business uh, it's like here here are sports here are highlights here's some shows about people talking about sports we're yeah. gonna stay out of your way yeah we're good yeah i the um I have some level of sympathy for people who are like, you know, I want to watch sports. It's a retreat. It's uh, I used to hear it from George. He'd say, look, people want a respite from all the controversy and stuff right. that's going on. The hard part was we were a news organization. And ESPN is a hard thing to compartmentalize. And people want to compartmentalize it. We wanted to be everything. Yeah. Back to the Steve thing. We wanted to be a news organization. We wanted to be the leading producer of games. We wanted to be journalists. We wanted to be... Uh, opinionist. We wanted to, you know, let Stephen A. Smith talk and let um, and ha- and let Don Van Natta do investigative reports, and we wanted to do it and have Bill Simmons have fun and produce an alternative website. It sort of felt like you could use the big umbrella of ESPN to do anything. Yeah, and for some people, it's it's back to 2004, right when it's no longer cuddly, and when you had the sort of politics of polarization and alienation you suddenly were forced to pick sides. 
And there's not many people who span both sides. Sports actually has the ability to do that. Uh, no, is nobody doesn't like sports. And in fact, a lot of the biggest sports fans tend to be fairly conservative, right? right? They tend to be in the Southeast and the Midwest. And, um, well, I remember 2013 in the summer, it was like the ESPYs, what I, I forget who hosted it, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to do a second season of countdown and we had dinner. Yeah. And at that point, ESPN was at like the peak of its powers. It was making an incredible amount of money. We had really no competitor at all and a ton of influence and we were doing cool stuff. Like yeah. I, I do feel like the stretch from like 09 to 2013, I still stand by the company was super creative, Both. like 30, 30 and Grantland stuff like that. Like e um, nobody else was doing this. E60. E60. We gave Wright Thompson an issue of the magazine to do a thing on new Orleans. I mean, there was some real felt like you could do anything. Yeah. You know? And I remember Fox was coming. Uh -huh. Oh yeah. And this is one of the reasons we like each other because you were like, these guys are, I'm going to, I'm going to destroy these guys. This was, <laughs> these guys think they're going to compete with us. I'm going to ruin them. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I can't, I remember it was in August. I can't remember. Yeah, it was like what July year. or August. July or August. Yeah, no. And look, we were, um, I, I used to tell people, well, I'm a Southerner, but, but uh, I'm William Tecumseh Sherman. You know, when it comes to business, I want to scorch the earth. Yeah. And our idea of Scorch the Earth is we're going we're gonna to get the rights to everything. I mean, good luck figuring out how to program 8,760 hours when there's no ACC available and there's, you know, no NBA available and there's no um, U.S. Open available and there's no Wimbledon available. And, and uh, you know, I think we did understand early at ESPN that live rights are going to be ascendant. I do know that when I got my content job in October, 2005, George was unbelievably supportive. And I said, George, we just, just start buying rights yeah, and buy things. And, and you didn't even know you had all the competitors that you look at 2019, there's competitors. competitors everywhere. We bought things that, that we had to start new channels to put, put on, put them on. Right. We did an SEC deal and got everything. It's at one game. Uh, every what, was week. The, what was the best move? What was the worst move? Because I actually think the best move, and I said this in the moment, was NBA. And people are like, wow, they paid so much for NBA. I'm like, no, they didn't. It's, the it, NBA has, has most of the famous athletes we have, the, and it's about to go global. The NBA is so ascendant, and the it, it's a long-term deal, and it's a spectacular deal. I don't it's, – it's criticism I bristled at because it's like, exactly what would you have had us do? Yeah. He overpaid. It's like you only can overpay if you don't need something or if there's nobody else will pay that much money. And there were at least two other big companies why that would have paid wanna, that much money. Yeah. I mean, you look at Fox and football in 94. Why would you want to give somebody else this giant asset that they could turn their business around? You didn't. I mean, we. Uh, I, thought uh, the, I thought the MLB was an overpay, though. I, I remember we talked about that at the time, just because I felt like baseball was becoming localized. The. Um, Look, I don't regret doing that deal. I think baseball is part of the heart and soul of ESPN. I pushed hard to dominate the regular season. Yeah. If I had to do over again, I would have bought some, tried to buy some playoffs, right? And now Fox has got the World Series, so I think 26. Um, and being in the baseball play postseason would have been a good idea. And we bought, I remember I was so proud because we had 100 regular season games. Because it's, it's literally eating up innings, no pun intended. Yeah. No, and, and it, it still is very important 
You know, it's a lot of highlights. I would have rather had the soccer. If it, if it was like my salary cap. The I World think Cup? You, I think there was a moment there where you just could have had, and you love soccer more than anybody, uh, where you could have just had soccer. It would have been like all the soccer is here. Everything. Yeah, I, the the uh, issue was before over the top, there was no place to put it, right? We we bought the we bought the English Premier League game that was the first game on Saturday morning. That was the first time I think the English Premier League had been on national television right. in the United States. And we and by the way, nobody people thought it was nuts. Because remember we had hunting and fishing on, <laughs> right. on Saturday morning when I got the job ahead of content. And I didn't want hunting and fishing on in the morning. Yeah. And we bought the English Premier League to put on before college, before game day. It's like, oh, it's great. You would get up in the morning and you'd watch Liverpool play, and then you'd go to college game day. It was great. Um, yeah, in, in the time, in the moment, it made no sense, but then it immediately made sense once people saw it. But then, without any place to put it, we couldn't buy the whole league. And Richard Scudamore, who ran the Premier League at the time, wanted to sell the whole package, and NBC smartly bought it. I regretted that. I regretted we didn't figure that out. But it was pre. Over the top, so you couldn't really put games on broadband. Um, what about not getting a Super Bowl? It really wasn't possible. It wasn't like we made a decision not to get it. I mean, the um, it, it was when we did the last NFL deal. Um, ESPN is getting so many distributor fees. There was no rationale for us to put those games on ABC. Yeah, and the N- NFL was non-negotiable. They would not agree to give a Super Bowl and put it on. ESPN and we were so ESPN centric that I don't think we even ever thought of. We know we'll put it on ABC. We'll put the Super Bowl on I ABC. I think they, they're thinking that way now. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And it's smart. And I was pro- probably we were so ESPN myopic that we we uh, we always wanted to take the NBA and take put it on ESPN. But well, this is a good segue to when we started having problems. The NFL. Uh huh. <laughs> The genesis of it was probably um, some stuff with count, me being unhappy with some stuff that happened with Countdown because I had not wanted to go back. And um, and you and I weren't spending as much time together. Very little. And, you know, all of a sudden it gets a little ornery. And then that leads to, I do the podcast, said the stuff about right. Goodell. Mm-hmm. And then you have to suspend me. Yeah. And um, um, the, look, when we, you left work. me a very angry answer machine message, which I erased. Good. Thank you very much. Because you're my friend. I'll be like Nick Nolte or somebody. Yeah, it, was, it, was, uh, it was like a Christian Bale type. Yeah. No, you I'm, were so mad at me. Yeah. Well, I think you're the maddest anyone's ever been at me. Uh, I, I think you and Jamel Hill <laughs> have, have, were the, were the, uh, were, the finals? were the beneficiaries of two of the very few temper tantrums I ever had. Uh, I have very few temper tantrums. Yeah. Uh, but that was one of them. Mostly because but we were no longer dealing with each other day to day. So it was like, I, I always saw all the work you did, yeah. but we weren't dealing day to day. So when you would pop back up into my life, it would be because it was some kind of problem. I and it's like, damn, and I, I got, you know, a full day already. And now I'm going to spend the next three hours trying to figure out how to deal with this. Which is um, something that I now identify with. Yeah. Yeah. As, as management, you're people. now the man. I, I, you, I get it. Yeah. I get it. And, uh, and look, we were. Although trying- I will say, in that case, I we had done. Jalen and I had done like a six-hour video shoot that day, and mm-hmm. we'd also done this podcast. 
And I, ha- I hadn't actually heard what I said. I wish I had heard it because if I had listened to it, there's one part I just would have taken out and it would have made a lot right. easier. I stand by the Goodell lying about stuff the, part. The, I, but the hard part about like, I don't even know what I was saying with like challenging my bosses. Well, it was kind of incoherent. Yes. It, it was basically, and I dare anybody to do anything. Which and, is just stupid. And of course you, you. As I'm, Kyle knows, we take stuff out of the podcast all the time. Yeah, we don't you, fuck the, you push the envelope and then you. It's funny how you remember these things. I was standing uh, on a sidewalk in Raleigh, North Carolina, trying to visit some friends of mine and yelling into the phone at you. <laughs> and you did. You said, look, we put the damn thing up. We didn't, I didn't have time to listen to it. And yeah, in retrospect, uh, I probably shouldn't have challenged. I don't think, I don't think you ever said uh, apologize for the remark. I, uh, I will never but, apologize for that. But, um, and. Uh, so then, so then when I got suspended, you didn't, you had somebody else tell me. So then I was, I was mad about co- that. Yeah, I was probably a coward. No, I, I well, who knows? So I was mad about that. And then we didn't talk. And then you called me to talk and I wouldn't talk to you. Yeah. I mean, we were like 13 year olds. Yeah. Like I look back, I'm like, God, why did I handle? But I, I would, I took it so personally mm-hmm. that I couldn't even talk to you about it. I remember that. I remember that. Look at, um, but it was a lot of it had to do with the history that we had. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I honestly felt like I was like, you know, it was like fighting with my dad or something. Yeah, it's, it was sort of like you said, you know, after we did the Grantland, the Grantland deal, it was like, this is my guy. And it's sort of like, where's my guy gone? He's disappeared into the corporation. Yeah. And doesn't he think I'm important anymore? And uh, the answer was, of course, I thought you were important. I didn't have time to deal with it. Yeah. And uh, that's a. But I think I, I don't think I was the only one in that position of you're used to because you were such a good boss when you had an easier job that. Now you're just kind of quickly passing through people's lives. And it was really, it was just different, it, you know? It was. Because um, that wasn't your management style. Your management style was anytime you went into a meeting, you always knew what the fuck was going on. And that you always had a way of, oh, even though I just spent a half hour with John, it was a really meaningful half hour. Yeah. And then it, at some point that job was crazy. Well, I remember thinking we have a thousand people under contract. For talent. Just talent. Yeah. So if I see three people a day, I'll see everybody one day, right? Yeah. One time a year. And of course, you have a hierarchy of who you can see. And at that point, I was mostly in Bristol and LA. And so it was like, well, you got to see the 30, 40, 50 people who matter the most. And I always hated that I'd run past people in the halls of Bristol and I'd go, hmm, I think that. I think that guy's, guy's name is Bob. Yeah, I think his name is Bob. And I think I'm he's pretty, part of the SEC network for me. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure <laughs> well, that he's doing, he's like the third, the third play-by-play guy on the SEC football. Yeah. And I had a natural inclination to want to know everybody, right? I go to the cafeteria and I try to remember everybody's name. And uh, it is the people, ultimately, you have to be somewhat impersonal at a very senior level with tens of thousands of people. Just there's no way to know everybody. Um, So we we had a dinner, I think, like a month after I got suspended in L.A. And I made the mistake of telling somebody that uh, worked for you, like my plan for things I wanted to talk about, who uh then told you all the things I was going to talk to you about. And it was like playing an NFL game where everybody knew the other team knew my plays. (laughs) 
It's like the Tampa, it's like the Tampa Bay Bucks. Yeah. And, uh, I was like, the what's Raiders. going on? Yeah. I thought that reverse was going to work. And yeah. I, I don't think that made it great. But then, I don't know. Did you feel like I was going to leave at that point? It's weird. We never talked about this. Um, I, I did ultimately come to believe that you weren't going to be happy within the constraints of ESPN, right? Yeah. And it always gave me sort of a bad vibe when I had to be the bad guy and call because I wanted to let you do the Obama interview. Yeah. But then I, when I got to be the man and had to call to say, you can't do this. Uh, I don't like that role particularly. It wasn't uh, natural to me, though I accepted it was my responsibility. And I've always taken my responsibility pretty seriously. But then, yeah, we could talk about the, uh, you know, when the, the morning when I de decided that we weren't going to renew your contract. And all I did was beat you to the punch because you weren't going to stay. And I knew that because I that think is you, true. I think ultimately you felt that you needed to find out what you could do for yourself. If you were on your own, what would I you said do? The, the problem though is I, I really love the Grantland people and I was yes. still to the bitter end trying to figure out how can this work? I, I remember we had talked about an idea of, I just left the company and then we formed a company that then was outside of the ESPN universe and that became Grantland yeah. and how would that look? And, um, yeah, I think there was just so much bad blood with people underneath you more than anything that yeah. that wasn't realistic. The I'm sorry that Grantman was a casualty of that because it was a good it was a good group of people. I don't know if it would have been possible to sort of create to say, hey, take Grantland. I, I think we had um, invested enough money that I'm not sure there would have been a receptivity internally toward just let him have it. If it had been the John Skipper company in retrospect, right. I would have said, just take take it and go do it yourself because you would have had no trouble cover it. You know, you'd have found sponsors. Well, because the ride home model was the one that was the most interesting yeah. to me because he basically was outside the company, but worked for the company. And, and it was kind of at some point thinking like, if we just did that, that would work. But yeah. uh, you got yeah. that, that a couple of places. Mara man who does the ESPYs has her own company and does the ESPYs for us. And yeah, you could have probably created content for us and done what you're doing now. If I'd have been, <clears throat> savvy enough to sort of figure that out. The I thing though, the, the beat to the punch thing though, I, I was still <laughs> that night before I still hadn't feel, felt like I had really said anything, but it, what was happening was people were writing these pieces Yeah, and you were reading the piece and not actually listening to, I mean, I was on Dan Patrick's show. I made some like joke about Godot, if he has testicular fortitude, but then in the way the piece made it sound yes. and you had already told me like, you got to steer clear of the NFL. Like this is, yeah. Yeah. this is, you really have to. Yeah. So I don't know. But do you regret that now? Regret which the beat part to of the it? punch thing. I regret that it interfered with our relationship for a long time. And because uh, you should have just called me, we should have talked about it. We sh we should have, I guess. Because I had I had added fourteen good years at that point. You know, you had fourteen great years. Uh, you were a master at Twitter, and I think I miss. I think I calculated somewhat cold heartedly. Uh, he's going to beat me to the punch and it's going to be on Twitter. My, I do recollect if, that I didn't yeah, get a, he, I didn't get a heads up about the Dan Patrick show. <laughs> so it was my one chance. No, I didn't give you a heads up. I remember actually, I didn't have that conversation with you. I had it with, with baby doll, James yeah, Dixon. He, uh, but that was another one where I didn't, I had been on there before and I didn't know I had to do the head. I mean, that was just like stupidity on my part. Uh, I mean, I was like you, I was. I was doing so many things, like things were slipping through the cracks for me too. It's, it's funny. When but you're you, right. When you grow up and you, you, you know, 
you remember these things have an arc, right? I, I don't know if, if, if even sitting here, don't you sometimes sit here and go, how did I get here? I mean, what, what was a series of events? Well, but still- it, it just, to me, it seems stupid now because we had this like, you know, real relationship and we, at some point should have just had like a real conversation about it. Yeah. But so- I think at some point I say it from your point, because I look like the rogue asshole who's not, not listening to you. And that's making you look bad as a leader which is a whole other issue. Look, it, it, in retrospect, we both in some ways probably looked a little petulant, foolish. I agree. And we would have been more dignified had we said, hey, let's get in a room and figure out what we're going to do here. Yeah, and, just go have a dinner and talk and, about this and shit. And do that. But it was hard because um, it's a cop-out, but it's it's doesn't mean it's an irrational or uh, incomprehensible cop-out, which is I didn't have time. Yeah. Right? I didn't have a, a day to fly out to LA and take, which was what it would have taken. Yeah. In the past, you know, you and I had, you mentioned before, we had dinners, we talked. If we'd have had a dinner, we'd probably figured it out. I didn't have time. It's a cop out. And you should make, you know, I should have made time for uh, someone who made the contribution you had. And I, I, I don't think you ever did not feel genuinely that I appreciated it. I remember. That's true. But, um, uh, and it was, profound i mean my just like you have people now who work for you and they make you more prominent i knew that what you'd done had been one of the things i'd used to get me to where i got into right that and you know e60 and 30 for 30 and the magazine and the website and there were tons of people uh i won't call it that you know from seattle you know who's still there you know uh the lovely john zare who had that car accident but i mean there were I made my career on the backs of people at Seattle who did the website, you know, John Papanick and, and Gary Honig and Darren Perry, who died, unfortunately, of AIDS. And, yeah, m- you know, I made my career on those people and Sue Hovey and Neil Fine and and um, Liz Merrill and Wright Thompson. I mean, and LZ Granderson and, and Jamel Hill. I mean, you know. Ultimately, your your success is made by other people, and you get the benefit of it. And then you just don't, you know, you end up in. If you're successful, of course, you. I, it's funny. I remember telling Connor Shell this. He was a good pal of yours, a good pal of mine. Yeah. Being in charge of content is going to be great. On the other hand, all the stuff that you really love to do, getting in an editing booth and finishing making a movie, giving notes on a documentary, you'll do less and less of that, and more and more of administrative, trying to settle disputes, deal with leagues, deal with, you know, contracts and budgets. It's the inevitable irony of success as you ascend to a level that's a lot less fun, but a lot more powerful, a lot more financially rewarding and a lot more influential. And you decide it's a, a, you know, it's a bargain. So Agri didn't tell you to do it? Tell me to do what? To, to get rid of me? No. No. I mean, it made him mad too, but, you know, to a remarkable degree. I mean, it's, it's one of the things I remember quite fondly. The autonomy in the job. There, there weren't 10 right. instances where either George or Bob ever said, no, you can't do that. There were 10, but it was not, you can't renew Bill Simmons. Right. If I'd figured out a way and gone in, we, I would have gotten to do it. So you talked about, uh, you've talked about, the issues you've had personally the last couple mm-hmm. years at ESPN. Right. Um, did you feel like it affected your performance at I, any point looking back now that you have some distance? I don't think so. 
Bill, but you know, it's impossible to say ultimately. I mean, I, I'm proud of the job I did. Um, it, it may be a, a, an instance you heard me say earlier, you know, I always felt a great sense of responsibility. Well, some of my actions were irresponsible, so I didn't lead, didn't adhere to my own standards there. So, uh, I, I, you know, immediately after the incident, I said, never affected anything. I don't know. You know, if you have an argument with your spouse, it affects stuff. So, yeah. uh, but did I, do I feel highly confident that I did a pretty fabulous job for six years? I do. Uh, any number of things may affect it. Not getting enough sleep, uh, sometimes, um, affects what you do. But, um, uh, I got, I was well-treated and the company absolutely got their money's worth. <laughs> what if you were still there what would your job be like i don't know you know it's um be trying to navigate i don't know I, the you know steve jobs remember steve jobs said people don't know what they want till you give it to them yeah um i wasn't i didn't know i wanted to do something else i didn't i wanted to do that job uh once you change you find you like other things and Maybe I have a little wisdom, but it never works that way, right? If I got the job right now that I got January 2012, I'd do things differently. Of course. Would it be better? I have no idea. If I, I, I your, your suggestion, I should have hired a chief of staff? Of course. And I, I would do it now. Would it be better? I don't know. Uh, you know, nobody. Well, the, the, the thing now about that job is you're dealing with all of these uh, rivals and adversaries, including the zone. But these people that have spun have money and want rights, and everybody's thinking the same way. Hey, guess what's a good bet? Live sports. Look, ESPN, and I'm proud of this because I was one of the participants in this with a bunch of other people. We identified very early and went out and bought a bunch of rights. And to this day, I mean, you just know ESPN renewed the American Athletic Conference. Right. Um because they continue to understand that he who has the rights, it's like playing risk, right? Yeah. Risk, he who has the armies wins. If you get to roll three dice and everybody else has rolling two dice, you will win. It's like and, Monopoly putting the houses up. Yeah. And, and at some point, playing everywhere you go around, you you run into, gee, ESPN has seven more years of the NBA and six more years of the U.S. Open. And, and by the way, I think about 17 more years of the ACC. And um, uh, the right, the live rights are still more valuable than any other content, right? All content is bifurcated now into the only thing that matters live is sports and news. And sports is scheduled and news is not. Yeah. Right? So you can't really schedule news, but you can schedule the Rose Bowl and you know when the, the, the day that Wimbledon starts. And it's the most valuable live content on the planet. Live content. It's still the only place you can aggregate a, 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 a simultaneous, a concurrent audience. And that's valuable to marketers. That's also on social, yep, experiencing everything at the same time. Yep. It just doesn't really happen. Game of Thrones is probably the last TV show that's going to have everybody watching it when it's actually on. You, you don't need to watch anything else in a linear manner, right? You watch my, everything my else on demand. My kids don't even know what channel ESPN's on no. or any channel. Because they just go to Hulu, Netflix, and YouTube. And people speak into a remote and say ESPN. Now, I've actually done it. And it comes up. It's remarkable. And um, I do think that, you know, I mean, we're in some kind of transitional period. 
and clearly um, there's too many. It's too hard now, right? I mean, everybody hates the pay TV bundle, uh, and it is going to continue to decline. It's not going to go away, I don't think, but it did kind of work for a long time, right? You paid one person, you got everything you needed. Yeah. Now you're going to have to pay 23 different people. And is there going to be a subscription threshold for people? Yeah, there They're is. Going to be nobody, like, I already have nine fucking subscriptions. Nobody wants more than, it's It's like, I know the Heinz Ketchup did all these surveys about how many ca- different kinds of ketchup do people actually want? And it's not very many. Yeah. People don't want, you actually have, I forget who the grocery store guy is who sort of studied how the grocery store works. And if you have 43 varieties of Coca-Cola, it's too many. You you can't really get past about six. So people don't want to have to buy service A to get one comedy and service B to get uh, another comedy. So and where does the zone fit into this? Uh, you are, you're doing boxing. Look, we're you're doing this MLB whip around show. You're that's, doing that's in the United States. MMA. So we're we're you have doing, a bunch of soccer. We have some rugby and some cricket. Look, we're we're uh, we've made a pragmatic and opportunistic decision that boxing is the one sport that isn't managed overwhelmingly by NBC, ESPN, yeah. CBS because it had disappeared into a pay per view world, and I suspect. I'm looking at your poster here of Ali Frazier. Yeah. Which would lead me to believe that probably you and I've never talked much about boxing, but we both grew up when you cared about boxing. When I still care. You, you, yeah. And, and pay-per-view remove boxing from the mainstream and, and suppress the audience to be for, for most fights, some hundreds of thousands of people who are willing to pay $80 to see, um, Earl Spence and Mikey Garcia box. Yeah. That actually turns out, I guess, to be about 350,000 people. Well, they happen to be very talented boxers who almost nobody's heard of in this country. And uh, we're going to try to restore it to where they appear in front of big audiences for an affordable subscription price. The uh, And it's the, a ridiculously loyal audience is the other thing. It's a very loyal audience. It cares a lot about it. I do think it can be a broader audience. Yeah. Look, we ESPN helps with that. Like the fact that they're putting stuff on basic cable. I think. Look, I believed in that. I, yeah. you know, I, I did the top rank deal. Yeah. With the idea that we were going to bring big fights. The first one we did was Manny Pacquiao and Jeff Horn from Australia. Right. That we wanted to get in front of a big audience again. And they attracted some big audiences. Our business model is different. We think ultimately we'll end up with a large base of subscribers and that for a hundred bucks a year, they will be thrilled to get six or eight or 10, I hope, uh, fights that are pay-per-view quality fights. It's a great value. And then we do have to figure out the baseball show is the first step. We have to figure out how to get other content, be a multi-sports aggregation. Then we got to figure out the issue that I think everybody wrestles with, which is one size fits all probably is not the, the end game. You probably got to have tiered pricing and you got to yeah. figure out ways because now we're at 20 bucks. I think it's a great proposition for boxing fans. But what if we'd gone in to get the American Athletic Conference, which, by the way, has some appeal. We we thought about it. ESPN yeah. never let it come to market. But now it's $20 varied entry. I don't know. You know, you got to figure out some way to make that conference available for six bucks or nine bucks a month. And uh, we're going to figure that out. But we got a really good proposition, I think. We're the exclusive home of 
uh, Canelo, Golovkin, Triple G, and uh, Anthony Joshua, and Danny Jacobs, and Demetrius Andrade. And there's some Deontay Wilder rumors. Um, We, uh, look, uh, we, uh, I had a chance to talk to Deontay, had a chance to meet with his team. We'd love to have that fight. Uh, They've got to figure out what you got now, which is appropriate. Is Deontay and his team have to figure out the right thing for him to do? And you got a little bit of a clash of business models, right? You got top ranking ESPN that's a pay that's a pay TV model with some pay per views. You got we're the pure play, we're a subscription service. And yeah. We're gonna put the fights on the zone, and you got PBC that's you know part pay per view, part pay television. So the thing. So, that what, keeps- so what's the ceiling though? Is it like uh- for? You know, you look at the next four years, are you become a major player with some of these rights that are going to be popping up? I, I believe that we'll have a a robust and a profitable sub, direct-to-consumer subscription business uh, uh, in a pretty quick time frame in the United States. And remember, we're not a, we're not a U.S. business. We're a global yeah. business. Our biggest businesses right now are in Japan, Germany, Italy. We've launched in Spain. We'll launch in Brazil in the next month. We we are uh, first mover and trying to capture around the globe. Go in, be first mover. We got good technology. We're buying rights. The U.S. is an anomalous market in the world. It's the biggest market in the world. Yeah. So you can't ignore it. We got to be here. But we're in Japan. We have the J League. Uh, we have uh, Japanese baseball. We have Major League Baseball. We have more baseball than anybody in a country for whom baseball is the one of the two most important sports, along with soccer, and we got more soccer yeah. uh, in there. So that's a different market. Germany, we've got Champions League. Italy, we have Serie A. In Brazil, we'll have a lot of international rights. We'll be able to create, I think, uh, a niche service. We're not a niche service in Japan. We're one of the two major players in Japan now. and um, But we need presence in New York. Because New York, I'm not New York, in the U.S. Yeah. Because it's where the financial markets are. It's where big investors are. And uh, so we got to figure out a proposition. And I think cleverly, I just joined 10 months ago. They already figured out the boxing proposition. And I've simply tried to help make it by going and getting a deal. I did do a lot of sports deals. Right. So I went and, and helped do the deal to get Canelo as a way. Who's the most, we now have the most important uh Hispanic fighter, we have the most important Western Europe fighter, and we have the most important Eastern European fighter. So, yeah, would I like to have the most important U.S. fighter? Uh, I would. I don't mean that as a poaching. I don't mean that to send a signal to anybody. You just simply ask me, we would love to figure out a way to have Dante Wilder fight Anthony Joshua because it's a fight fans won't, but I'm not trying to intrude on their business. They have good business to do as well. We're going to try to figure out. Right now, business models are in the way of that happening. Right. And business models are real things. People are trying to make a living. So this happened with uh, the Zone sponsor of my podcast for a couple of months. We had we had dinner, like what, September, October? Yeah. And you had said, you know, you'd had over like probably the year or so before that, you had had a real come to Jesus moment with a lot of stuff yep. in your life. Personal, personal stuff. Professional some friendships you felt like you had kind of uh, gotten away and you were trying to rekindle some relationships you had. So we had a really good dinner. We talked about a bunch of stuff and decided it would be fun to do something together. Yep. That was it. It was really that simple. Yep. But and it was good. It was a meaningful dinner for me because, you know, obviously you were a hugely important guy for me. And even with the stuff here, 
there's so much DNA of all the stuff I learned from you mm. and ESPN and Grantland mm. and kind of really have figured out how to put together as a business here, but it wouldn't happen without you. So I'm glad we get along again. Yeah. We have a lot of history. Yeah, no, no. I'd forgotten about a lot of it. It's it's <laughs> it's funny. It's like going, uh, I've actually avoided, I've never been to a reunion of anything. Yeah. Right. Never been to a high school reunion, college reunion, because I've never like I wanted to go back and reminisce about what went on. This is a little this is the closest to a reunion I've ever gone to. Yeah. It's been fun. Um, I've enjoyed it. I appreciate it. It's I appreciate good. the time. There, there's some other stuff we could have talked about, but you, you're you on the record with certain things, certain yeah. nights that happen in your life that, you know, I did, you're not going to talk about that. I don't want to. I mean, right, you know, I, I think I've been reasonably forthcoming. Uh, I The press release that went out at the, at the time I wrote, the I did an interview with The Hollywood Reporter because uh, uh, there was, clearly was a, a – an unsatisfied, uh, unsatisfied uh, response. People thought thought they wanted to hear more, so I uh, said more, and then I did a podcast with Peter Kafka. I don't have anything else to add to that. Um, and um, how long do you see yourself working, like at at a, at a high at a high rate? I don't know. It's a funny thing. I'm 63 because uh, you're flying around a lot. Still. I'm flying around a lot, but um, I feel better. I feel you know I feel good and. Uh, I take care of myself, and uh, uh, I got up this morning uh, like uh, like Bob Iger. I, I might have beaten Bob up this morning. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah, and uh, worked out and had oatmeal for breakfast, and I'm I'm getting on a plane. You accommodated me. Do I doing this early because I'm getting on a plane? Yeah, yeah, we got to go to fly south of here to try to see if I can find another place to launch uh, the zone in. Well, good luck. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad we're able to do this. It's nice to uh, have you back. I'm glad. Maybe this is this is a good lesson to people. Sometimes some shit can happen, but talk about it and and uh, put the past in the past. I would do a couple things differently. I'm sure you would too. Me too. But look, we are where we are, and you can't. You know, however inelegant the path is, you either are happy with where you are, or you're not. I'm happy with where you and I are. I'm happy where I am, and it's fun. And we'll. We'll have dinner again and we'll laugh and we'll have some more fun. All right. John Skipper, thank you. All right. Thank you, Bill.